0: So why do we suffer? Why why do we suffer? It's the great human question, isn't it? This story Jesus tells has been played out across continents throughout the centuries. The poor, sickly, marginalized Lazarus, (coughs) the abundantly self-satisfied rich man. These are characters portraying the very randomness of human existence. Who experiences pain? Who doesn't? Who gets sick? Who doesn't? Who dies young? Who doesn't? Who has nothing? Who doesn't? Humanity is a menagerie of sufferings and blessings with no apparent rhyme or reason as to who receives what. And so we get to this place where we ask why. Why? Interestingly, Christianity has always wanted to give concise answers, hasn't it? The problem is the answers all tend to further confuse the issue than offer any substantial and lasting help, especially to those that are in the midst of suffering. But I get these intentions. They're good intentions to try to help people that are suffering. Suffering so horrible. It's so outside of our control. We just want to get some sense of control back, don't we? So we offer these simple answers. Unfortunately, this is... I think, how we started to blur the lines between relief and redemption. We so want God to be in the relief business that we've blended these two ideas together. And soon enough, God has almost become this idea of this great big vending machine in the sky. You put in just the right coin just the right money and whatever branch you happen to be on that will, the currency will look different right? It might be the right prayer, it might be the right specific work it might be the right doctrine but whatever it is and God will just start dispensing blessings when I was a kid I used to have a Mickey Mouse gumball machine put in a quarter, thanks for the gumball Mickey and God has sort of taken on this idea, he'll just remove our sufferings we can just put in the right thing because we've blurred these lines between relief and redemption. And that makes it even more confusing because some people do get relief. and Some people don't. 200 something people got on a plane in Malaysia last Saturday. One guy who had a ticket didn't get on. Random. There's no answers. One of the interesting things about this parable is the clear suggestion from Jesus that relief and redemption are two very different things. See, Lazarus means the one whom God helps. And remember what we said last week. This is significant. This is the only parable Jesus named a character. So this isn't just some random name. He obviously used it purposefully. The one whom God helps Well, that mustn't be true because Lazarus received absolutely no relief from suffering in his life. Hmm. But maybe Jesus is teaching us that God is in the redemption business. He's not in the relief business. Now, hold on before you get upset with me. Certainly his redemptive process, which functions through grace, often brings about relief often brings blessings as a natural byproduct of that process. God loves us after all, and I think He wants us to enjoy life, and as the shorter Westminster Catechism says, enjoy Him forever. Random blessings and specific relief from sufferings are always going to be part of that process, and I, for one, am never going to stop praying to God and asking Him to help me and bless me and in my life. But God's overriding purpose is our redemption. And redemption necessarily has, as its main focus, the changing of our lives into Christ-likeness. Saving us from the prisons of fallen humanity and offering the eternal freedom beginning now of being like Christ. St. John. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Jesus Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I think this is heaven. And that maybe is something else that has blurred this whole idea of relief and redemption. A lot of us have this idea that heaven's going to be this place where all of our deepest desires are instantly gratified and satisfied, almost like heaven's a fast food restaurant with a drive-up window. I'm not convinced that's what heaven is going to be at all. We're going to be like Christ. And what is Christ like? He died for others. Bailey really gets this. And he changes the question about suffering. He says, the question is not why. But what now? What now? The events of our lives have meaning. We access or fail to access that meaning by the way in which we respond to those events. Redemption then brings a response like unto Lazarus. A lack of redemption like unto the rich man. And as we begin exploring the second half of this parable, this understanding of redemption begins to assert itself. Lazarus, we will find, is amazingly like Christ. His response to the circumstances of his life is evidence of his redemption. Evidence that he really is one whom God's helped. So let's see this play itself out in the story, at least begin to play itself out in the story. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So Lazarus dies, and Abraham welcomes him as his guest of honor. Guest of honor. See this Abraham's bosom thing? So this sort of means guest of honor at a feast. We, We know this from, remember at the Last Supper, remember this, this is the Last Supper, John's leaning on Jesus' bosom. So these these feasts would would, these dinners, like these couches that sort of form this U shape, I think they got a funny name, triaculum or something like that. And the, the in the place of honor, you would be closest to the host. That see Jesus' bosom, John was laying with his head right here. So he was closest to the host. He was a guest of honor. And here in our story, Abraham, okay, is in, I mean Lazarus is in this place of honor at this feast. <laughs> The rich guy ends up in Hades, and he sees Lazarus in the place of honor at the feast, and this is where the parable starts to get a bit Alice in Wonderlandish, And I mean that in the best of ways. Remember, why did Jesus tell parables? To call into question our understanding of God, and our understanding of how the redemption thing works. The first thing to notice is the rich man recognized Lazarus and knew his name. So obviously, this guy in life both saw the poor beggar at his gate and understood the circumstances, understood about his circumstances. So much for being able to plead ignorance. And this reminds me of Matthew 25, the great final sorting event, right? People said, and and Jesus is sorting out, he says, you guys need to go over there because you didn't really help me. And they're trying to argue and plead ignorance. We didn't know you needed help. And he says, oh no, that's not actually true because whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And I think this is one of the reasons this parable scares us so much. We, we, <laughs> ignorance isn't going to work when we get to heaven. Oh, well, we, we didn't know our, our choices were marginalizing half the planet. We didn't, we didn't know that we didn't know, we didn't, and God's just going to just shake his head that ignorance isn't going to work. But what happens next is dark, dark, dark comedy. And is a complete indictment of this man's character. So we called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. The rich guy, instead of falling on his knees in some form of repentance, and apologizing to, and asking Lazarus to forgive him, and ultimately trying to find mercy from God, maintains his grotesque hedonism, his arrogance, and fantasies that because he's so rich, and so wonderful, and so great, he can still save himself. Notice... He doesn't even talk to Lazarus directly. And based on what he does say, we can become convinced that this guy held all marginalized people in total contempt. He starts off by addressing Abraham as my father Abraham. Now, all the Arabic versions of scripture have the personal pronoun, mine. It's only suggested in the Greek. That's why it doesn't make it to the English. But there's no doubt He's saying, my father, and this is important, and because Bailey helps us understand why it's important, is because, Bailey says, the rich man is playing his racial card. Okay? This is important. It's as if he's saying, listen, Abraham, I don't know about Lazarus there, but I am definitely a child of yours. And this should count for something. Something else that next week when we wrap up the parable we'll really get into when he really tries to push this. And this is why I think another reason this parable is not a favorite of us in American Christianity. Because I think we're going to be like that. But I'm a Christian. And that guy that I see behind you, God, that's already in, he wasn't a Christian. Now, side note here. Remember last week, I said... This feasting sumptuously every day was not just a symbol of the man's gluttony, but also showed his total disregard for God. And the reason I had said that, in order to feast sumptuously every day, right? He couldn't observe the Sabbath. (coughs) And by extension, he wouldn't allow his servants to observe the Sabbath either. Okay. So here, he turns to a man for mercy. Have pity on me, Abraham. Now, we should offer mercy to each other when, we hurt, when we've been hurt by each other, right? That's, that's Christ-like. But when it comes to eternal redemption, there's no human offer. There's no human that can offer the necessary mercy. Only God can do that. So this guy has no awareness of God's intimate involvement in human affairs, does he? And that makes total sense. He spent his life all about himself. Wouldn't even observe the Sabbath. Interesting. Okay, and here we go. This is the darkness of it. And then, he actually, this is the dark comedy. He tries to get Lazarus to serve him. Jesus told the best stories. You know, they got watered down a bit in Sunday school for us, but they're just dark. I told you, Alice in Wonderland, we're, we're down the rabbit hole now. In life, the rich guy wouldn't even feed Lazarus his leftovers. And now he is trying to order him around, despite still not even talking to him. He is as self-indulgent, arrogant, and uncaring as he was on earth. The quote I used last week really rings true now from Ben Pasley, doesn't it? Many have settled for a lifetime of worshiping inferior, temporary things. Their lives reflect their pursuit. This guy, he's a beaut, isn't he? There's not much indication of redemption here. I don't think there's any, really. But what of Lazarus? The man who suffered his whole life. He was abused by this guy on earth, and now... He's being abused by him in the afterlife. Now, here, if I was telling this story, here's how I would have ended it. Because of my understanding of human justice. This is exactly how the story would have ended if it was my parable. We can all thank God now. I'm not God. Here's how I would have ended this story. I would have had Lazarus stand up Look right at the rich guy and say, you arrogant, evil, godless, despicable creature. You had everything, and it would have cost you nothing to have simply fed me and helped me from your abundance. But instead, you treated your dogs better than you treated me. And now you want to order me around? There will be no water for you. Burn in hell. You deserve it. It's justice. And if I was drawing a graphic novel, right then I'd have him throw a five-point Chinese star right into the guy's hand. (laughs) And then I'd go back to my feast. Because that's so human, isn't it? That's why people put AK-47s in Jesus' hand when he comes back. Good. Awesome. My God. God's not human. We should be very careful when we want to point To human justice. And try to pretend God acts that way. Lazarus says nothing of the sort. He is Christ-like. Even his response to his enemy. See. In St. Paul's definitive work on love. Which we're close to. We are so close to. I can't wait to get to 1 Corinthians 13. But anyway. In his definitive work on love. He calls love patient. In fact, he begins and ends his definition of love with patience, a form of patience. Okay? Now, in the first one, love is patient. This comes from an original word, which I can't pronounce, that's why I don't. I put the slides up for you, which comes from two other words far away and anger. And what this word means is to put aside anger even when it is justifiable and within your power to do something. See, it's so important to dive into Scripture, as we do, right? We've been learning so much by diving into it. We, we have our own definition of patience here in 2014 America. Right? That's not really what Paul is saying. Paul is saying something much more profound. Putting aside anger, even when it is justifiable and within your power to do something. Boy, that should change the Christian story a little. The greatest example of this in Scripture, outside of the cross, of course, because God was justified. He wouldn't have had to die on the cross, really. But he did. The greatest example we find in 1 Samuel, the story of David. So a lot of us know the story, but let's just remind ourselves in case we've forgotten. So Saul is chasing David throughout the land, trying to kill him. And he's got his army chasing him. And, and David's spending his life hiding with his people, hiding in, in caves and, and living a horrible life. And finally, one day, David and his main guy, they sneak into the camp, where Saul's lying asleep. And David's main man says, "David, today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Let me put my spear right to his heart. Right now, David. David's justified in this. By doing this, David protects himself, and more importantly, he protects his family, and he even protects his nation doesn't do a thing. David did not preemptively strike. And what was David considered by God? A man after God's own heart. I find that fascinating. And then Paul ends 1 Corinthians 13 with another form of patience, which comes from two words, under and endurance. Patiently remaining under suffering for the sake of love. Wow. See how it just opens up, these meanings? Patiently remaining under suffering for the sake of love. This is patiently enduring all suffering for love's sake. All suffering. Maybe we'll never know how our response to suffering changes lives until we get to heaven. And God introduces us to people and says, Oh, by the way, this is Mary who watched the way you suffering turn turned to me because it was so amazing. Bailey writes about Lazarus. Lazarus created meaning by what he chose not to do. He was quiet in his days of powerless suffering and remained silent in his days of power as he listened to his former tormentor demand services from him. This gentle, long-suffering man has no reservoir of anger ready to explode, no reflections of retaliation in the waking hours of the night, no score to settle, and no vengeance to exact. Think about that. Think about that. That goes against us so much, doesn't it? I know myself, I, my kids even point it out sometimes. I'll flip it something, I'll go, Dad, why are you so angry? Obviously not what just happened. Obviously I have this reservoir of anger that needs to be dealt with. Reflections of retaliation, you know, you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you're thinking about what someone did to you. No score to settle. We love settling scores. Love it. We love to see the bad guy get his due. Lazarus was truly like unto Christ. His response to the circumstances of his life, both bad and good, echoed so beautifully at redemption. Then Abraham ends his next response to the rich man with this interesting comment. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Now, we're going to get into this more next week as we finish up the parable. There's a lot more that goes on. But I want to make a quick side note and then one other comment. The symmetrical imagery in this story is fascinating. You know, we've looked often at the composition of St. Paul and seen how amazing it is. This is one of, this is an incredible story, whoever finally put it down in writing. It's, it's incredible. One of the examples here of this symmetrical imagery is that in life there was a gate between them, and in death there is a chasm between them. I wonder if the rich man had opened that gate to Lazarus in life, if this chasm would still be here in death. Now, we're going to consider the rest of this detail, like I said, in greater week. But I want us to think about this through the coming week. In light of a God who died for us. Who, in their right mind, would want to go from hell to, I mean from heaven to hell? Who in their right mind? Honestly. See, we're down at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party Because someone must want to go, or Abraham wouldn't say that. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot. There's only one other person in the story it's Lazarus. So here's the question I want us to reflect on this week Is he whispering in Abraham's ear, asking permission to go? and show compassion even on the very man who hated him. Wow. You know some of the way Christianity gets done and and I, I'm I'm guilty of this is I think we would struggle to even find out some of our enemies are in heaven. Here's a guy that wants to go from heaven to hell, to help his enemies. But I think this is divine love. I think this is where redemption leads. I think even maybe this is where redemption is. And I think this is the answer to all the different circumstances in our life. And I think it's certainly the answer to the question of what now when we suffer. we're going to look at this as we get closer to Easter but on the last night Jesus was with his disciples he was leaving them they were about to suffer do you know how he comforted them he didn't give them trite answers he didn't try to say it's going to be okay cuz it wasn't going to be okay he was leaving he was getting killed he said, love others. Love others. Love others. Wouldn't it be awesome if that's how we helped each other through our suffering? Love others. And I'm asking you all right now, please, when suffering visits my life, And my family. And it's coming. You can't be human and it doesn't come. It's coming. Please promise me. I don't want concise, pithy answers. I don't want to be told God's in control. I don't want to be given any other answer. Just come alongside me. And keep reminding me to love. because I am convinced